This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Hey, I'm glad you're with me. You know, it seems like just about everybody has a take on the federal election. Well, maybe other than the 40% of eligible voters who didn't bother casting a ballot. In a moment, though, I'm going to share with you one aspect I'm actually willing to state with certainty. I'm also going to be joined by Vision Capital's Jeff Olin. The Vision Fund focuses on real estate stocks, both good and bad. But here's the thing. Remarkably, the fund's never had a down year. But you know, one of the things I'm looking forward to is Jeff says in quotes, we may have an unprecedented time never before seen in history. Well, in a couple of moments, I promise you, I'm going to ask him to elaborate. I'm also going to talk to Integrated Wealth Management's Andrew Rulin about the biggest worry he has right now for investors, but what you can also do about it. I've got Aussie and what's next in real estate post-election. I got Victor with a buyer beware warning, Michael Levy on the big bump in dividends that's going to be coming, along with a goofy that still has me shaking my head about the election. But first, anytime there's election, there's a tendency for people to jump on their own personal hobby horses to explain the results. Although that's got to be made more difficult by the fact that voter turnout was within one-tenth of one percent of the all-time low. Now, while I appreciate the Prime Minister Trudeau claimed he has a clear mandate, you know what, he may be stretching that a bit, given that the Liberals received support from something like 19.5% of eligible voters, uh, support from 32% or so of people who actually cast a ballot, actually less than the Conservatives got. But I'm not sure how many would agree that represents a clear mandate. But one thing I am willing to say with certainty is that there's a lot stronger case to be made. There's nothing changed when it comes to the way we do politics. That's despite the fact that virtually every leader promises to do things differently. But we still have the same old attack ads, as opposed to trying to actually inform Canadians on a policy vision that gets past superficial sloganeering. We still have misrepresentation of position of other parties. But hey, but now it looks like it involved into doctoring audio of what other party leaders said. As for open and honest government, like, come on, the SNC-Lavin secrecy and refusal to cooperate with the RCMP along with halting the We Charity investigation by proroguing Parliament. Yes, proroguing Parliament has been done before, but that's my point. Nothing's changed. There are numerous examples of the key to Ottawa's who you know, not what you know, along with the revelations in Jody Wilson-Raybould's book that could have been a poster child for old-time dishonest politics. I mean, during the campaign, it was clear that politicians still rely on the free lunch promises, which are bigger than ever before, I guess some of them recycled from decades ago. As noted, University of Calgary economist Jack Mintz stated in quotes, parties are out-competing themselves in massive giveaways in the belief that deficit spending has no economic cost. Well, my description was that the party platforms made Santa Claus look like a skin flint. In short, what just transpired looked a lot more like the same old politics rather than anything new. And my own take, and this is only my opinion, is that there's going to be no new politics until we start prioritizing integrity with our leaders. Obviously, a lot of Canadians have different priorities. As for policy, as I've stated before the election, it's imperative we focus on economic growth, yet that certainly wasn't a feature of the election. And the formula is not that tough. I mean, attract capital investment, period. Invest in skilled labor, and physical infrastructure, reward success, not punish it as some parties want to do. I mean, did you catch former Liberal Finance Minister, Deputy Prime Minister John Manley's statement this week? I'll repeat, he's Liberal Finance Minister. 
In quotes, a combination of tax policy and other policies have been causing many Canadian firms to invest abroad rather than here at home. I mean, we've got to reverse that. We've got to make Canada a welcoming place for investment. We've got to reward innovation and resilience. We've got to reward success, end of quote. Well, what we saw clearly in this election is that self-described progressive left, those in some in the Liberal Party, NDP, Green Party, disagree when it comes to making Canada an attractive place to invest, which is why our competitiveness ranking continues to fall along with capital investment. Also got something to do with the fact that our economic growth average is about one and a half percent over the last 10 years. I couldn't help but notice that this is also isn't an issue really for much of the media, not economic growth. And when it comes to rewarding success and innovation, as former Liberal Finance Minister Manley suggests, well, not a chance. The response is the antithesis by raising taxes on companies and individuals. This, by the way, is one of the fundamental differences in today's Liberal Party under Justin Trudeau and the Liberals under Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien. As David Dodge, former head of the Bank of Canada, states, the policies of the government in power and the proclivities of the current prime minister are not particularly oriented toward the hard work of generating economic growth. But come on, no one's surprised. Economic recovery barely made it uh, rated a mention in last September's throne speech or in November's update. Look at the April budget. Words like benefit appeared 1,300 times, support nearly 1,000 times, while words like productivity, which is key to economic growth, appeared 39 times, competitiveness 13 times. But people, including the media, have their own priorities, and I respect that. All I said is I echo that of former Liberal Deputy Prime Minister John Manley. We need to attract capital, welcome success, or at the very least, stop denigrating it. We do need to improve our competitiveness in order to grow the economy, which, come on, is the foundation of making progress in so many other areas. I mean, whether it's protecting government services or solving unemployment or homelessness or climate change, let alone our standard of living. But as I said, people have their own priorities, and I do respect that. But I do have a question to finish. Back to the election. Do you think any party could actually win without promising a massive list of freebies, all with the promise that somebody else is going to pay? Could any party win talking about reducing the size of government or at least making it more efficient and more accountable? We saw in this election that no politician would dare talk about even minor changes to health care, despite the fact in August we got the latest Commonwealth Fund survey saying we finished 10th out of 11th in ranking. I mean, there's lots of other examples. I mentioned health care because poll after poll tells us Healthcare care always ranks at or near the top for Canadian concerns, but not enough concern to have a respectful, open, realistic discussion of what changes need to be made. So my answer to the question, would Canadians actually allow politics to be done differently? Well, my answer is no. I always look forward to getting a chance to chat with Jeff Olin. He's the founder. He's the CEO of Vision Capital. Vision Opportunity Funds have had a spectacular record. Well, really since the inception. I mean, I look back just the other day because I knew Jeff was coming on with me. You know, 13 years, double digits. But I guess for me, because I'm a bit risk averse and I know that managing risk is sort of the key here, they've never had a losing year. When you think about that, like 2000. Uh, you know, and some of the problems, the vagaries of what's happened, especially in the real estate market. And again, if, you, if you're not aware of what the Vision Opportunities Funds are, the team with Jeff, they identify situations, obviously, they want to invest in, but they also identify situations 
when they think the stock is overvalued. And that's how they do their real estate. They invest in uh, the stock market looking for overvalued, undervalued kind of situations across the board. I mean, they've done exceptionally well with the real estate investment trusts. But I'm thinking, uh, Jeff, I'm going to keep talking here, so I better bring you in here. I just want to give one example of the short because it was something that you did with our audience and people really took notice when you started to worry about the impact of the pandemic very early on. You said, you know what, this is going to be a killer for the hotel business. Yeah, I mean, uh, some people call us uh, experienced, others old. Uh, we remember SARS. Uh, and we remember when SARS hit, um, the first thing that got hit was anything travel related. So we really didn't have any sense of the pervasiveness and the problems of this pandemic. But it was really because it was in January of 2020, long before the world really woke up in March we started getting news feeds out of China about this thing called the coronavirus. And uh, so the first thing we did was, you know, we shorted the Marriott hotels and host hotels. And uh, of course, by March, those had already worked out pretty well. And so that's something we can do in our space. And we don't just use shorts on an absolute basis. Like I described, we also use them on a relative value basis where, for example, uh, in 2020, um, where there was significant outperformance uh, in the Sun Belt in the United States because of employment growth. And yet some of the coasts, San Francisco, New York City, were getting crushed. I mean, rents were down 31% in San Francisco. And so we could go long apartments in the Sun Belt and go short apartment REITs that were focused on the coasts. And we could take out the apartment sector risk. We could take out the real estate sector risk and just focus on two things. Sunbelt was a better place to invest in the coast. And two, then do some stock picking and find the best of breed and the ones that are perhaps most challenged on the coast. What are you finding right now in terms of opportunity? Because your fund is way up this year. We all have chronicled on Money Talks regularly that when you looked at residential real estate, one of the things that's a little bit different this time around, uh, for example, in Canada, uh, you know, it's across the board rises. You know what I mean? Like everybody participate globally, too. So I'm just wondering, uh, you know, one of the first things that jumps out for me always, you know, old time investors, I go, OK, is all the fun out of it? You know, should I start being more cautious in that way? Are you still seeing lots of opportunity out there? Yeah, I mean, when you've got a situation where the Fed and monetary authorities are trying to keep interest rates lower for longer, and I don't have to be effective, but certainly um, you can't make money in bonds. Uh, because the yields are low and the interest rates are low and there's nevertheless a prospect of interest rates rising. Um, and you've got, as a result, according to Prequin, like $500 billion of a dry powder sitting with the Blackstones and Brookfields and pension funds that are looking to increase their weights to real estate from 5 to 10% to 15 to 20%, private equity funds that are fully funded all looking to put money in real estate because it's tough to make money in bonds. Um, and then, nevertheless, the spread today between the cash flow yields of REITs and investment-grade bonds is sitting at about 160 basis points, whereas the historical average is 100 basis points. So it's still pretty compelling. And, you know, we'd rather not compete with Blackstone. We'd rather sell to Blackstone, which we've done, I think, three times in the last four years. 
Um, and this is an opportunity because with all this thirst to buy properties, it's a very good backdrop for our strategy where you can buy at a discount uh, through undervalued shares. So the backdrop looks good. That said, we see winners and losers from the pandemic, Mike, and, and so we can perhaps can get into that in a little bit. But uh, we never we we are cautious in terms of a global outlook. We see a lot of risk in the global outlook, even though the fundamentals for real estate per se look pretty solid. Uh, maybe just uh, I'm going to oversimplify for a second, but give us the categories that you like categories. And what, what I'm coming back is you guys were very early on in the uh, sort of warehouse move because of uh, accelerating e-commerce. You talked about that before. I think uh, very many people were aware of that. And you told our audience that, hey, you're looking at that kind of sector. So that's an example of what I'm sort of really asking here. Yes. Uh, and of course, you were in apartment REITs. But as you said, geographically uh, selected also. I mean, it's not as simple as I'm making this out to be, but can you still give us those sort of broad categories of what you like and what you don't like? Sure. We still like the industrial space. The e-commerce logistics story continues. Everybody gets it now. It's real. It's powerful. It's longer term. But because of the pandemic, there's two additional powerful secular forces at play here. The first is uh, onshoring, returning of manufacturing to North America, benefiting uh, North America, including Mexico, where, if you recall, uh, Canada couldn't rely on the United States when Donald Trump blocked our masks from 3M in April of 2020. I don't think any of us want to rely on China for pharmaceuticals. So that's the first thing, the return of manufacturing benefits. And the second thing is a redundancy in supply chain is that, you know, when folks like you and I perhaps went to business school, we talked about just-in-time supply chain, just-in-time manufacturing. Well, that's done. It's over. Now it's just-in-case manufacturing where you will have additional inventories and redundancy in the supply chain. And these three factors continue to bolster industrial. We like single-family rental homes. These are residential homes that you rent uh, as opposed to apartments. Uh, we like necessity-based retail, grocery store, pharmacy-anchored retail. We're not positive on the malls. Uh, we like apartments in Canada with the return of immigration. Uh, you know, 1.2 million immigrants coming to this country over the next three years. Uh, the return of students to housing uh, that doesn't, by the way, the 1.2 million immigrants doesn't include 700,000 foreign students uh, in this country. So the fundamentals look good there. Uh, and we're cautious on office. We're cautious on malls. And we're cautious on urban hotels. And I, I just, sorry, I'm just thinking I want to remind people that uh, Vision Capital, the Vision Alternative Income Fund is available to anybody. I mean, you just simply can just go buy it through a broker, go to uh, visioncap.ca. It's, it's simple. I just wanted to uh, put that out there for people, the Vision Alternative Income Fund there. And of course, there's the Vision Opportunity Fund that's uh, done so well. But uh, Jeff, let me come then to some of the things you're talking about. As you said, you've got to be selective. Now you're in an area where uh, you've done incredibly well with REITs. Uh, they've done well. Seems to be a combination of things. And I, I'm sort of looking at this environment where you know, the Federal Reserve and the Canadian, you know, Bank, uh, Central Bank of Canada, they're determined not to allow rates to rise particularly. I mean, they don't control to the to the 10th of a point, but they don't want some significant rise. I don't see a scenario where they can allow that actually, given the amount of debt governments taken on as an example. So it seems like a really interesting time. Uh, inflationary pressures for assets are growing and that's, that's there. You still have the record low rates. So 
it seems like the environment's pretty good, especially when you look at the REIT market, for example. And, and sorry, one more thing. They want to talk about raising capital gains. Hey, REITs don't pay cap, or, sorry, corporate, uh, corporate income tax. Pardon me, corporate income tax. REITs don't pay corporate income tax. Right. So that that's certainly positive for REITs on an absolute relative basis. You, their flow throughs, they don't pay corporate taxes. But you hit on a word there that's important. You bring some of this together. Inflation. Uh, you know, if, if we were chatting as we did January, February, we, we would have probably had a consensus view that there's inflation, but it's transitory. Uh, well, it's not our role in life to um, to project inflation starting in uh, February, March. I think we led Wall Street and Bay Street thinking that this notion of inflation being transitory is nonsense. Um, you see cost pressures everywhere. You see it in every manufacturer talking about rising input prices. It wasn't just lumber. It was corn. It was canola. oil. It's steel. It's iron ore. It's labor. You see Tim Hortons closing in areas around uh, Toronto because they can't get labor to work at $15 an hour because they're, they can get a $50 an hour, you know, cleaning, cleaning the cottages. I mean, you see it everywhere. And so inflation is real. Now, Typically, as you know, inflation is good for real estate. It's a hard asset. Replacement cost values go up. And typically, when you have inflation, it's met with higher interest rates. Now, if the Fed is successful, as you've noted, with keeping rates lower for longer, we may have an unprecedented time never seen in history where you have mortgage interest costs, whether it's public or private real estate, low because of interest rates low, and yet because of inflation, the value of the real estate assets are going up. We've never seen this before. And so it, it is a pretty interesting time in that regard. And that is one of the reasons there's so much private capital looking to buy properties, which really underpins our strategy. I want to, it's funny, you led in beautifully to what I was thinking while you were saying that, which is uh, the amount of money in major uh pools of capital. It might be private capital, might be, you know, companies we're familiar with. Man, uh, have they ever got interested in the very sector you guys have been in for 13 years? Indeed. I mean, you know, single family rental residential, we've been there every time. It's become the darling. Yeah. Every institution on the planet wants to figure out how to get in a single family rental home uh, business. And most of the Prussian ones realize it's operating intensive and you better have a pretty good operating platform. And there's uh, three or four outstanding operating platforms in public markets. Uh, the other thing I like what you guys do is that you look and you're well aware of all the market, of course. But you also specifically look at, uh, you know, Canadian REITs, but they invest in U.S. properties. And uh, one, for example, that you brought to our attention is... Uh, is pure uh, multifamily REIT. No, that's just one example. I just, you know, that it's just an interesting aspect there that they primarily own U.S. or European property. Yeah, that's been a, a really, really great place to be. They're off the screen of Americans because they're not listed in the United States and Canadians really don't necessarily appreciate them because the properties are in the United States. So there's been a history of these uh, and the most recent one, a very recent one, uh, you know, WPT uh, REIT, uh, you know, this is, we participated in the IPO. We've been there for some time. Uh, I mean, let's talk about a little history here. Uh, we have coined the phrase, I think, as you highlighted about six years ago, industrials and new retail. And one of our big uh, investments at the time was a Vancouver-based uh, group called Pure Industrial REIT. And they were uh, properties in Atlanta, Toronto, and Vancouver. Well, Blackstone showed up in 2018 
and bought Pure Industrial REIT at a significant premium. I think their IFRS valuation was 607 and they bought it at $8.10. You fast forward to February 2020, WPT REIT, another Canadian REIT, all U.S. industrial properties, buys a big portfolio from Blackstone that Blackstone had bought from Pure. They raise a lot of money at, I think, $14.45 to fund that. And we participated in that in, in U.S. dollars. You fast forward to August of this year, the Blackstone announces they're buying WPT REIT, this time at a 49% premium to the IFRS value and a 32% premium to the analyst consensus view of the value of this stock. So the same properties that they bought sold, they just bought back another premium. That's what's going on. These are the opportunities you have in some of these great um, names that are listed in Canada but are focused in the U.S. So we love a couple of them today. Uh, Tricon is one we've talked about, single-family rental residential, uh, listed on Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, we like BSR REIT, which is um, apartments in Dallas, in Houston, in Austin, Texas, listed on Toronto Stock Exchange. HOM is a symbol there. We think the BSR, uh, based on where apartments are trading in those markets, is worth about $21 a share, and you can buy it around $15.50, and it's got a nice uh, dividend of 3.3%. So those are examples of some of those opportunities that you have uh, by REITs that are off the radar screen. Well, the other thing that you you brought to mind is that because I kept track of uh, one of the things uh, that you found if the, the the individual properties that you were buying, the stocks you were buying, were takeover targets, as you just described a moment ago. And I, you're nearly twenty, I think, as far as I know, you know, I think nineteen or something of of properties, uh, individual companies that you've owned, stocks that you've owned that got taken over. I mean, that's got to be also in play and one of the attractive features going forward. Yeah, I mean, that that is a core, uh, um, you know, we don't necessarily buy things because they're takeover targets. Yeah. But one of the differences between real estate and any other asset class is there's an arbitrage between the public markets and private markets. And when you have all this capital that we talked about uh, looking to buy properties, often the cheapest way and the most efficient way is to buy en masse a publicly traded entity. Blackstone figured this out. They've done at least five acquisitions of real estate through buying public entities. And this is a difference in our space and something we look for. Well, uh, so let's, let's finish with this because uh, I always love to hear you talk about, you know, some of the situations that you're focusing on right now um, with vision. Uh, but again, just to summarize, you're looking for that you think that the net asset value might be more, uh, you know, much higher than what you're paying for in the market itself. Plus you get, uh, you know, dividends, that kind of thing. Plus they may have some other attractive features, uh, obviously being in the right sectors, uh, right geography, all of those things. Can you give me, you know, just a couple more names, even reiterate a couple you just sort of uh, scooted by. That, yeah, I mentioned you know, Tricon, uh, great management, $3.4 billion market cap. Uh, the U.S. comps are trading at a significant premium to net asset value. Tricon's trading at a discount. Symbols TCN on Tricon. Single family rental homes is the primary part of what they do. And they also own some apartments in the Sun Belt. A BSR REIT, I also mentioned, good 25% discount to the value of the real estate. 3.3% yield. Great management with 40% ownership. They're aligned. 
up here in Canada. We like Boardwalk Reach. Uh, you know, my, my partner, Frank Mayer, and I helped form Boardwalk Reach too many years ago. We know it really well. Uh, it was under pressure for some time because their focus is in Alberta and Western Canada. We think they've turned the corner. It may be the cheapest apartment stock in North America today. Uh, we think that's a good 15% discount in that Asa Valley for apartments. Um, and on the industrial theme, uh, we found a little jewel called Vesta, which is a Mexican REIT, or not a REIT, but a maximum industrial corporation. Um, whereas a part, uh, industrial real estate in Vancouver, where you're sitting is trading at a 3%, uh, unlevered return or cap rate in real estate speak. You can buy Vesta REIT at a 9% implied cap rate. We think it's trading at a 30% discount to value. You get a four and a half percent yield. And those that are scared off by Mexico, 86% of their leases are in U.S. dollars with Fortune 1000 companies, and they really are in well positioned for this nearshoring and onshoring trade, never mind the explosive growth of e-commerce that's taken place in Mexico. So there's an off-the-radar screen uh, name for your audience. Well, one of the things I'm always asked is, you know, when it comes to money management, I say, well, you look at who the managers are. And in this case, uh, with Vision, uh, Vision Capital, I mean, the track record is very clear. And you can just hear, listening to Jeff, uh, the expertise. And uh, he's following a market that I'm interested in, but they're doing all the work. And uh, that's why I've always got a smile on my face when I look at the Vision Alternative Income Fund. It's just getting into situations, identifying them, and you can do it in stocks uh, or whatever other aspect might be a commodity fund, but you always look at the management. And Jeff, I want to thank you. Uh, The Vision Alternative Income Fund, you can go to VisionCap, visioncap.ca to get any more information there, but the Vision Alternative Income Fund. Uh, Jeff, always appreciate you finding time for us. Nice to uh, see you through this uh, format that we're recording. Um, and thank you for uh, having me on today. And if any of your audience has any questions, you know where to find me. Great stuff. Uh, before we take a break, I'm just going to remind you that we have the Special Olympics auction on. You know, I'm chairman of the Special Olympics golf tournament. And uh, so the auction is kicked off. We close it down on Wednesday with the tournament. Uh, that all you have to do is go to newmontauction.com. I hope you bid. I hope you support Special Olympics. Uh, much appreciated on my part. A lot of work's gone into it. Very difficult to be pulling this off. We've had five uh, delays or five moval of dates because of uh, guidelines. So we could really use the help. Just go to newmontauction.com. Time now for this week's quote of the week. Years ago in what I consider, well, maybe one of the better observations I've ever had, I declared that we've been living in the age of the anti-intellectual. And one of the manifestations is the degree of certainty people have when it comes to the most complex issues. The less they know, it seems like the more certain they are. I mean, there's so many examples, but we've certainly seen it with both COVID and climate change. I mean, it's astounding how many people take the current level of scientific knowledge and pretend that there is a certainty that's just not warranted. And that brings me to my quote of the week by Bertrand Russell. You know him as a British philosopher, uh, a mathematician, historian. He won the Nobel uh, Prize in quotes. The demand for certainty is one which is natural to man, but is nevertheless an intellectual vice. So long as men are not trained to withhold judgment in the absence of evidence, they will be led astray by cocksure of profits. 
and it's likely that their leaders will be either ignorant fanatics or dishonest charlatans. To endure uncertainty is difficult, but so are most of the other virtues. I want to bring in Michael Levy now, who, by the way, seems to have the privilege of giving us good news on a weekly basis. And this is no different. But, Mike, I wanted to talk to you. It's something that you brought up as early as uh, March of 2020. You said the banks are being forced to have huge reserves set aside because there was so much uncertainty about the pandemic and the fallout and that kind of stuff. And as you warned us a few months later or told us a few months later, well, as things weren't quite as bad as we thought, the banks didn't need that much money set aside. But here's the thing, they were not allowed to raise their dividends. And now I see a ton of talk that we could be ready for a nice little windfall in terms of higher dividends as we go out in the next few months. Mike, we've been, as you say, we've been talking about this, pardon me, and the fact is we've been keying in on the banks because the banks have been just building these reserves as they take money set aside for possible loan losses and put it back onto the balance sheet as retained earnings. And there had to be a time that came that the banks would do share buybacks and also increase dividends. And this has been on our agenda, yours and mine, for almost half a year now. Well, Brian Belsky, he's uh, the BMO chief investment strategist and very well known and respected in the industry, in the, in the industry, is predicting a big surge in Canadian dividend payouts and not just the banks. Yeah, and let me just uh, remind people, if you're part of the Canada Pension Plan, you are a workplace pension plan, if you've got mutual funds, this is also going to be good news for you because, of course, they own Canadian stocks and all these major players are probably, I mean, if you looked at through all the major pension funds, you'd probably see every one of these companies, you know, uh, mentioned in there are owned by the by the pension plan, of course, and individuals. But what you're just saying, Mike, is, uh, you know, if it's been paying you X dividend, finally, they're going to sort of be able to jump those dividends, as you say, and I'm glad you pointed that out, not just in the bank situation, also, you know, many, many other types of companies. Well, they say, I mean, Belsky said, and I really want to quote him because this is his story, not ours, not mine. He says, we believe recent earnings strength in Canadian companies that are in a strong position to begin redeploying excess cash balances and cash flow in the form of both investments and cash distribution read dividends. He says, in fact, the TSX has exhibited an epic positive surprise cycle that has translated into one of the sharpest earnings rebounds on record, full circle, dividends, stock buyback. Well, and and the other thing in the list that, uh, uh, you know, that was in the Globe and Mail with uh, Scott Barlow. He was mentioning it from the BMO strategist, Brian Belsky. Uh, lots of names that we've recommended on Money Talks. I'm thinking Algonquin Power and Utilities, uh, you know, BCE, uh, TELUS, Toronto Dominion Bank, Manulife uh, Power Corp. There's a lot of the stocks that uh, we've talked with Ryan Irvine about and Aaron Dunn about, you know, in our portfolios for the uh, for sort of solid uh, dividend paying stocks. And you know, I saw a huge amount of that list. So I know there's going to be a lot of money talks listeners who are going to be happy with this. Well, they are, Mike, and, and it broadens our vision of what has has been happening. I personally have been keying in on the banks and it's no surprise to our listeners that um, I do invest in the, in the banks. That's been one of my mainstays. So I watch it even a little closer, but 
never did I think, and I mean never did I think how that was going to broaden and expand to energy. It's going to, to, to the restaurants, to a financial services company, to life insurance companies, to energy companies, even energy companies. Well, I was just still sitting here, Mike, and say how you you keep drawing the long straw be able to give our listeners good news is beyond me. They call me the bad humor man, but you're now the good humor man week after week. Mike, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show, Andrew Rulin. He's president of Integrated Wealth Management. And you know what? Before I go anywhere, Andrew, I got to thank you for your support of Special Olympics. Uh, you've been spectacular with your company and consistent and, you know, just really positive vibes coming. And I can tell you the athletes and their families, it's just so much appreciated. And that's my way of sticking it to you because uh, I'm wanting people to know that right now we have our big golf tournament auction on that they can go online, newmontauction.com. Newmont is N-E-W-M-O-N-T, newmontauction.com. And I know you'll do it because you're always supporting Special O, but I did want to start with saying thanks for that, Andrew. That's always my pleasure, Mike. As, as I've told you before, uh, I love the way that you use the, the leverage that you have on this, on this platform to, to help people that, uh, that are really in dire need. In fact, I would say that in many respects, uh, people with intellectual disabilities are amongst the most forgotten in our society. So the fact that you use your uh, platform for that is, uh, it's easy to join in. Well, that's great. Uh, I'll give you just one quick uh, thing here. Talk about forgotten. They were forgotten during the pandemic. Uh, there's no group that had a greater incidence of dire health results or uh, outcomes uh, because they have a lot of comorbidities a lot of times uh, than that group. But yet you hear them rarely ever mention people with intellectual disabilities. But anyways, mm -hmm. let's get on to some stuff that you deal with on a daily basis. Obviously, you're dealing with clients, you're dealing with analysts, you're looking at the broad picture. I, I just want to sum up and say, what worries you most when you look out there? By far, it's the bond market, and in particular, the government bond market. And the reason for that, very simply, is that Government bonds are assumed to be risk-free, other than perhaps uh, fluctuation in, in value if you're, if you're looking at the long end of the, the, the yield curve. But there's this assumption that government bonds are perpetually safe, that governments never actually uh, default on, on their debt. And second, uh, what goes along with that is the fact that there's this almost a cult-like belief that central banks can always control um, interest rates over the whole yield curve. And of course, they can control the short-term rates through their policy, like the Fed funds rate or the Bank of Canada uh, overnight rate. But the fact is, is that they simply don't have control over the whole bond market. And when we get to the point, we don't know exactly where it is, but when we get to that point where uh, the tipping point is reached of confidence in government uh, has started to decline so much and so many people have lost confidence, then we're in for some big trouble. Yeah. And, and as you say, you've got to at least understand there's that risk. And that I'm with you that I think people don't appreciate. I mean, our job as professionals, your job is helping people manage their money is to manage risk. That's what a pro does. So just even to acknowledge that that's out there. Uh, let me go one more that's related, of course, is inflation. I mean, we got our number from August, 4.1%. So I can tell you if I've got one and a half percent in a 10 year bond, I'm losing money. I'm losing purchasing power every year. But what's your take on inflation? You know, the transitory debate, that kind of stuff. 
I, I think uh, for the Fed to say and for the Bank of Canada and, and other central bankers to be saying that it is transitory, I think that's more of a political defense than anything else. Um, we see that there are pockets of inflation, but inflation seems to move from different uh, from one area to another so that overall the inflation seems to be more of a permanent feature. And of course, you know, we have all the money printing that's going on. But the thing that I think the pandemic has really brought forward is supply chain risk. And so uh, we end up with shortages in, in different, different areas. And so that, I think, is driving the inflation. While it might not be kind of normal inflation, the fact is, is that prices are going up. And, you know, 4.1% in Canada, but 5% um, is, the, is the current number in the U.S. And those are the official uh, CPI numbers, which, uh, which are, I think, a little bit misleading because, um, at least in Canada, it doesn't include energy or food. And I don't, I don't know what's more important than the ability to eat or, uh, or to heat your home or, uh, in many cases, you know, to actually be able to drive somewhere. So, yeah, so when they do yeah. that, I'm sorry. Uh, so the core inflation number, you're right. They remove energy. They remove that. They also don't include asset inflation. Like mm-hmm. I want to buy a home. Now the cost of owning a home, that would be property taxes, insurance, maintenance stuff has gone up 14% in the last year, but that doesn't include the, the, the buying. So there's a lot of things that are not in, inside that sort of uh, calculation. But let me ask you this. Okay. So, you know, I mean, one of the reasons, by the way, quickly, the Bank of Canada or the feds don't want to say inflation is longer term because it doesn't make any sense to own a 10 year bond at one and a half percent if inflation's running, whether it's three or four or five. It doesn't make any sense. So yeah. they've got to talk that game. But what do you do as a money manager uh, to help protect your your clients in terms of, okay, well, they don't want to take a lot of risk, you know, but they recognize inflation's eating away their savings. So how do you handle that? Well, it's, it's, I would say, kind of a three-pronged approach. Uh, first of all, in, instead of having any long-dated government bonds, we've chosen to basically get out of the government bond market altogether and, and shift really to a high-quality corporate bonds um, uh, allocation instead of government bonds. That's going to give us a bit of a pickup in yield, and it's also going to, um, to reduce our duration risk. So government or corporate bonds can go down when interest rates go up but because they're on the shorter end of the yield curve that that won't happen quite as badly the second thing is is that we have brought in uh some private alternatives and so this would be things like uh, private credit uh, private real estate those are the primary things and uh in some cases a little bit of farmland um depends on 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 the circumstances and the access um you know through a securitized investment and then the third thing is what we call stocks you can tolerate which is going to be a way of managing stocks that, uh, that provides an income through dividends, but also uh, minimizes the volatility because we're not just buying and holding and we're not just buying an index. We're buying a select basket of, um, of dividend growers that have a history of growing dividends, and that brings a lot of stability. So not only do dividend-paying stocks have lower volatility than, say, growth stocks, but the other side of it is, is the fact that our managers actively manage, and they are not required to be fully invested all the time. And then we bring in things like currency hedging and put options, and uh, and the tactical use of cash is implicit in the fact that we're not uh, not always having to be fully invested. So that reduces the overall volatility of the portfolio. 
and effectively prevents the client from having to be in a position where they have 15, 20, 30, or what used to be, say, even a 40% allocation in government bonds in the old-fashioned 60-40 portfolio. It prevents them from having to basically be picking up dimes in front of bulldozers, because that's really what the, the government bond market is, in our opinion. Well, and you can hear, everyone can hear that, you know, this is some significant thoughts to have here. And that's why I, I got to remind people, we're doing a webinar right after the show today. And uh, you just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca and you can sign up. Again, there's always a limited number, but in this case, we're going to keep it available to people. So just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. It starts uh, like 10 minutes after I'm done today, 11.05 Mountain Time, about 10.05 Pacific. Uh, today, but it gives a chance to get more detail in those kinds of things, because I think this is a kind of discussion people need to be aware of when it comes to managing their money or having their money managed. You've got to know what questions, what thoughts to have. And as I say, uh, that's a great opportunity. Andrew, as usual, I've got to just get one more thing in for you, though. Can you give me a one minute thing on the commodity super cycle? Well, uh, we're of the belief, we're in the camp that thinks that we are in a multi-year commodity super cycle. And uh, about six months ago or so, we actually introduced a, a kind of a module with one of our portfolio managers called Core and Explore. And that's how we have been, I would say, uh, conservatively participating in uh, the commodity super cycle, uh, doing it through... Uh, some long or flat only ETFs, as well as some sector specific ETFs. And um, the only one that's really uh, behind by by a long shot is, <laughs> is is the gold sector. But that's, uh, you know, another discussion for, for another day. But we're doing quite well in the uranium sector. And uh, the clean energy space is still down a little bit from inception. But overall, we're still up in the, uh, the 7% neighborhood or so uh, since inception. So that's a, a conservative tactical way of uh of playing the commodity super cycle so we're not looking at you know trying to buy uh you know uh, arbob uh gasoline futures or or playing around on the nymex with uh, with natural gas futures or anything but but we're playing it conservatively but that's another way to actually offset the effects of inflation because of course commodities are one of the things that uh that of course uh, attract a lot of capital when there's a lot of extra printed money flowing around well, I just remind people, the webinar starts immediately after the show today. Uh, good stuff. I mean, this is the kind of thing that people have to be engaged in in a conversation, have to be engaged in in their thought process to mm -hmm. hear some of these uh, different ways to approach the market, protect yourself. Andrew did a great job today. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. That's uh, go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. You can sign up for the webinar there, or if you can't make it today, you can still receive a recording of the live webinar. So go to that integrated wealth management. Time now for this week's shocking stat. Polls consistently show that one of the byproducts of this election is that the country's more divided. Well, maybe not a surprise because there's been very little effort to bridge the divides, especially the politicization of the pandemic. But there is a bigger picture with more at stake. And that is the consequences of the continued decline in confidence in government. Now, I talk about this all the time. I get that because I found it incredibly valuable when I look at big trends going on around society impacting finance and government. And I might add, understanding it gives me a big edge in forecasting. For example, that's why we forecast Trump's victory in Brexit. It underpins our long-term bullish call on stocks, while at the same time, we're worried about the bond market. 
that it needs daily government interference to function, or in Europe's case, there's no functioning bond market without government interference. See, if there was confidence in government, the central banks wouldn't need to be in there buying government bonds on a daily basis, because the public would. Now, I could go on about that, but the fallout from the election and the pandemic is fascinating. As highly respected University of Calgary economist Jack Mintz states in the National Post, Less appreciated, but maybe more serious, is the opening of political scars that cause voters to lose trust in government, leaders, and election integrity. The damage could be long-lasting, especially with the pandemic policies themselves having become even more politicized because of the unneeded federal election. Well, here's the thing. In a nutshell, a recent study by the National Bureau of Economic Research looked at the impact of epidemics on impressionable-age voters in 142 countries during 47 epidemics. Now, I'm not going to bother going into the details, but here's the bottom line. The authors estimate that that age group had roughly roughly 5% less confidence in the national government. Their confidence in leaders dropped 6% and their faith in the election integrity, 7%. Well, my point is not those specific percentage points, but it's the change in the level of trust. That's the trend. Everywhere you look, Confidence in governments declining. I mean, look at the massive protests in Europe, uh, Australia, vis-a-vis the pandemic restrictions, the anti-carbon tax protests in Brazil two years ago. You've got the yellow vests, what, in 2018 in France, pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong, all of that fueled by distrust in government. And I'll tell you this, the point to note, there's a lot more to come. Well, during the federal election campaign, all the parties talked about housing. But you know what? They've been talking about affordable housing for decades. And this is just the latest version in this latest campaign. I thought I'd get Ozzy Jurek in there. We know the election results there and see what the good, the bad and the ugly were. I mean, what things are going to get instituted? Was it all just talk, smoke and mirrors? Or does he think some of this stuff is going to happen? Ozzy, let's just uh, start with overall, what was your impression of the platform's uh, in terms of, you know, people have a concern about affordable housing, but I think that's a supply issue too. Uh, you know, I, I'm just wondering, what do you think in terms of those platforms now? Are we going to see them implemented or are we going to talk about exactly the same things when the next election rolls around? Well, first of all, I want to say, look, we are in a democracy. I love a democracy. Churchill said that the worst kind of government is a democracy, but it's the best one we have. So we can work with any government. And I don't really think no matter how I might feel about the election results, I don't really think that our elected officials sit around the table and saying, how can we zap the population? Well, maybe sometimes, but they try to do their best. But when you drill down in some of those promises, you realize we had a headline election uh, premise. Everybody uh, said the most sometimes outlandish things that uh, that you wonder how you would ever implement it. And so there's some good stuff. I mean, the insurance eligibility cap to 1.25 million from a million is needed, certainly in the big cities. Uh, the 25% mortgage insurance premium will be welcome to the buyers, not welcome to CMHC or maybe some of the other insurance. So that's a good thing. But then you take the rent to own program on the face of it, a billion dollars to help tenants become owners, right? Good stuff, right? But Mike, when you read the, the, the fine print, right, it says the program will be designed based on three principles. The landlord must commit to charging a rent a lower than market rate. Well, I think that's probably a stop right there. But say, so say the owner does that. So allow the buyer to save up savings for down payment. 
but then the landlord must commit to ownership for five-year term or less, and then there'll be proper safeguards to protect the buyer. Okay, well, I, I really don't think that, I think it's it's dead in its tracks to put the onus on the landlord. Now, a billion in loans and grants to non-profit organizations and co-op partners, there might be uh, some organizations that, that, that might avail themselves of it, but the individual landlord to carry the weight is, is just not, it's not on. Yeah, as you said, I mean, I, I, I read those kind of things and it may sound good if you don't think for five seconds, but as you say, uh, what they're doing is, yes, if that's in favor of the buyer, they can't punish the landlord for that. I mean, that has other ripple effects and that's why I agree with you. It's non-starter. Let me ask one other, uh, another one. 30-year amortization for first-time buyers, you know, if it's in a starter home. And I'm just, again, wondering, I mean, I thought that was already happening, I guess is my point. Yeah, anybody can go and get a 30-year amortization. Now, if you qualify, there are yeah. certain stipulations. And the reason there's an argument, I used to argue you should have a shorter term because in a, in a world where inflation isn't really existence or, or it's all even, then it's better to pay up the mortgage as fast as possible. But as in this new world of unbelievable money printing and incredibly 1.4%, 1.4% mortgage rates, uh, yeah, go as long as you, as you can, get as much money, borrow as much, because it's a, it's a good thing in this inflation world to owe money. So it's, it's a good thing, but I'm not sure exactly why we would pick a special a special thing that it's there now. You can get it now. Well, other couple of things. I mean, it's just another reminder. You've got to look at the details of these programs. And I'm just looking at like the first time home buyers plan. This this whole deal where you get the home buyer tax credit. Can you first explain what that is and what the implications are? Well, the, the, the NDP has it that they want to double the home buyers tax credit. The, the tax credit is relatively simple. If you bought your first house, you get a credit for up to $5,000, and that should, on average, make you $750 in a tax refund. The NDP says you want to double the home buyer's tax credit, and uh, that would make a $1,500 tax refund. Nothing wrong with that. The point is, so that, that will it come in? Now, I, I, seemed, I think, and we may be wrong, that maybe the liberals are a little chastened, and maybe the NDP has a little more power, and this would be sort of an, a no-lose thing for the liberals to agree with, although it's an NDP idea because it's first-time buyers, it's a holy grail, it's affordability and all this. So this may very well come in. But we people should also remember that all incentives that have built in a government partner haven't worked. You know, we have a, a 10% uh, mortgage that the government will grant you on your newly constructed home. And this, 10, this is 10% of the value of the house, and there's no interest rates and no interest and no payments. So if you had a $400,000 house, you could get a $40,000 loan, and you didn't make payments on it, it would save you about $200 a month. Whoopee, wonderful, a real great thing. However, the twist is that if you make a profit in the house, the government will participate on the same percentage than, uh, than, than you got. So, so that 10% of the house had you done this four years ago, you would now owe the government 120,000. Right? So, so, I mean, in fairness to the government, they also participate if it goes down, right? But none of these have really worked because the buyer says, no, I'm struggling to get this house. If I make any money on it, I want to keep it. Okay, so let, let's back up. There's a lot of stuff came throughout the campaign. Bottom line, 
Do you think if we met uh, three or four years from now, or the prime minister said during the campaign, if he didn't get a majority, he might call another election within 18 months. <laughs> will the conversation just be the same? I meant, can these have any kind of uh, significant impact on the affordability issue? Well, the old saying is the road to hell is paved with good intentions and the intentions are there. But unless, and I said this uh, several times uh, in the past and in all my speeches, unless we get all three levels of government together in a room and nobody is allowed to leave and has power to make a decision, then nothing will happen because the city has rules. They need to have their taxes and the water rates have to go up and the province wants to save, uh, protect the, the tenants. Uh, so they put a rent control in. And so the two just don't work together. You know, you, you put in a lane warehouse. Well, the federal government says you lose a third of your exemption. All of these things seem to be at odds. It's like putting uh, three horses in front of a cart and they're all pulling different directions. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the key is they it's it's I thought dramatically over promised, you know, in terms of what they can do. The this is sort of presenting this idea that we can make a, a real dent in this. And in fact, some of them suggesting we can solve this problem. And uh, we've been talking about this, I know. But we sort of say, let's get three people. Let's get all three levels of uh, uh, people in a room and uh, governments and let's work something out. But until that happens, I don't see it happening either. There's, there's just too much self-interest and everybody is looking at their own constituency and wants to win a battle. And this is not about that. You can't say I want affordability and then uh, you keep raising the costs in my area and uh, you do whatever you like. No, they have to get together. And the supply issue is the key issue. The Canadian Real Estate Association says so. The Fraser Institute says so. Anybody, any economist says so. You need more supply and then the pressure on prices will stop. In the meantime, I know you're going to do this weekend, Ozzy. You're going to be going to uh, www.newmontauction.com, newmontauction.com. That's N-E-W-M-O-N-T, auction.com. Special Olympics, big golf tournament happening uh, on Wednesday. This is the auction. It's open uh, today, and it's going right through till Wednesday. I hope, as, uh, as you, Ozzy, who uh, continue to support Special Olympics, but I hope you get on, bid on all those items, and uh, I guess I'll see you Wednesday. Yeah, and I'll be there. And, and listen, you razz me all the time about my golf game, but I'm going to tell you, I know that I'm better because I'm hitting fewer spectators. Yeah, okay, there you go. <laughs> Ozzy Jurek, ladies and gentlemen, ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca. I got an arm's leg list of questions because I got to go right to the trading desk. I got to get Victor Dare in here. Vic, I'm just going to fire some stuff at you. And I'm going to start with China and the Evergrande in the news. Big worries about contagion, you know, the debt problem. It looks like foreign investors are going to be left out in the cold there. You know, there's no word that they're going to get paid on the bonds that they hold. Of course, the Chinese investors, people who have pre, pre-bought an apartment, the big worry, it seems, from the Chinese government is, hey, maybe that's not going to get built. So this is still overhanging the market. You talked about it four weeks ago, but it seemed like the market just started to pay attention with that decline on Monday. Yeah, the contagion the risk, I guess, in China is really easy to imagine. The property market there is huge as a, as a percentage of GDP, certainly as a percentage of household assets. So it's like 60%. Uh, so if somebody, and we all knew, you know, in that vague way about what you know about China, but we knew that the market was 
uh, the real estate sector, I should say, was really over levered. So you could imagine that it could become a real problem. And, uh, you know, as, as our good friend Ross Clark and Bob Bahoy made reference lately, that, that Evergrande went from being a page 16 problem to a page one problem. And that was Monday. And interestingly enough, that was the low on, on the stock market this week after, you know, selling off from, from last week's levels. I think my key takeaway here is what will the Chinese Communist Party do? All the other stuff is just kind of, okay, who knows what, but they're in charge. And they've been making it very clear that they're in charge. I mean, just today, just yesterday, I should say, they came out with making everything crypto is now illegal. They're, they're washing the society with wave after wave of regulation. You know, they're taking people in, arresting different people. They're, they're squashing that notion that it's glorious to be rich, you know, in China. And it's all in, in the, in the pursuit of what they call common prosperity for all. So what I'm saying here, Mike, is we can imagine all these things, but I think the key thing to focus on is what is the, the Chinese Communist Party going to do? And I think they're going to they're going to maybe wring some of the excesses out of the system, but they are not going to allow it to descend into chaos. Yeah. And the big warning, though, I think for Western investors and people are going to get caught. Uh, Hong Kong banks are going to get caught. You know, and that's why the contagion thing is still on the table is who lent them that money? Who's not going to get bailed out by the Chinese government? And that's why it's still a big story. Um, yeah, it's to me, it just is a big flashing red light, do not own Chinese equities. And the reason is, in the end, the Communist Party of China owns them, and they can do whatever they want. And as you talked about, I'm going back about a month, you talked about, look what they're doing to the rich capitalists. You know, Jack Ma uh, disappearing, you know, Apple News disappearing, literally, you know, out of Hong Kong. I mean, the there's a lot. There's a long list. This has been out there. So I guess that's all part of the China story. But it's going to be fascinating going forward. No kidding. Um, you know, I mean, where it showed up in our world uh, was that the, the like the Dow Jones had made a peak back about a month ago and was kind of cruising along right at its highs, and then in the course of five trading days, it dropped a thousand points and rallied back a thousand points. Just like. Well, nothing actually happened. But, you know, and Monday was that low. I'm really intrigued here as to what's going to happen, because I think the, the Chinese situation was just a catalyst that came along. The situation was already charged. You know, the Federal Reserve was, I think, seen as they are going to be on a path to reduce the quantitative easing that they've been doing. That's been a big support for the market. The market has also thought there's going to be just a tidal wave of stimulus coming out of Washington. They're really changing their tune on that. Joe Biden seems to be fading. There's less consensus. I think in a word, Washington, D.C. looks dysfunctional. So it may be some disappointment there. So here we are with the market richly, richly valued, highest levels ever. And some of the key supports were starting to weaken. And then the Chinese scandal sort of tipped the scales. We had a quick sell off. We've had a reflexive bounce back. I think for me, the $64 trillion question right now is, so where do we go from here? I think here's my thought. If this market does not go on and make new highs and seasonally, it should, you know, seasonally, September is the weakest months of the year. And then the market rallies through the year end. But if we just kind of bounce back here and if we start to roll over again, 
I think we could see that this this correction has got more to go. Yeah, and I'm going to go. I, I'm going to move to gold for a second here, and I want to just let people know Vic is a trader, right? You're looking at short-term patterns and how you can make money up or down, uh, as opposed to me when I look at the gold market. I, I'm even more conservative than normal. I say. I believe that the you have to have some hedges against the amount of money getting created. It may get reflected in the gold market far more than it is today, it may not. But that's why I'm not going to commit a ton of funds, but I'm going to have exposure to that market. Vic, you're looking at opportunities to buy and sell and the movements. So I wanted you to talk a little bit, you know, again, just remind people that's your perspective. Talk about gold. Well, gold has struggled uh, this month. It's down $80 or so from the, the highs the beginning of September. I mean, one of the enemies of the kryptonite for the gold market is a strong U.S. dollar, and the U.S. dollar has been strong. Um, just here this week in particular, we've seen <clears throat> uh, interest rates rising. The yield on the long bond is rising. Real yields are rising. The yield curve is flattening. That is not good news for gold. Uh, we talk about gold as bullion. You look at the GDX, the ETF uh, of a bunch of uh, major gold mining companies. It's trading at 17, uh, 17 month lows. So gold is struggling here relative to other things. You know, we've had people that would say be promoting the idea that we're going to have hyperinflation. Well, maybe, maybe not. But, you know, the gold market doesn't seem to be reacting to that right now. In terms of, you know, a hedge against all that money printing, I mean, it seems that, that the first mover, at least, has been the real estate market. You know, we've had tremendous gains there. And, and another thing about gold, honestly, is I think it's a bit generational. Uh, I think folks uh, your age, my age, and so on uh, are more familiar with gold as a edge. I think the younger folks uh, look more to, toward crypto. I don't know that they're right to do that. I, I just think that I know our good friend Martin Muirbill has done some empirical studies on that and shows that crypto actually has taken some of the share demand for gold. But to finish, Mike, you know, it, gold is been in a downtrend this year. If you're looking at a longer term time frame, maybe uh, maybe it's a bargain at these levels. Well, great stuff as always, Vic. I'll tell people, though, to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. You can see the latest charts, uh, fuller thoughts of uh, Victor gets a chance to express there. But the charts, I, I think, are wonderful. So, Vic, you go out and have a great weekend. Thanks, Mike, and you too. Oh, just a reminder, Vic, oh. you've got to get on and you've got to – I've been telling people today, as you know, you're committed to Special Olympics. I am too. Uh, just please – Go to newmontauction.com, newmontauction.com. Uh, the auction is on. It's live right now. We go through to Wednesday evening. And I would just uh, really appreciate if Money Talks listeners came and supported that. There's some fabulous things there. One of the things, by the way, that caught my eye, Vic, is if for anybody who's in business or groups and they do retreats, well, I went to the Western Wilderness Lodge this past uh, July. It is a fabulous place, just about... Uh, a one-hour drive from the horse uh, from Langdale. You go Horseshoe Bay Ferry into Langdale, and you take about an hour drive. You're there. You feel like you're at the other side of the world. Fabulous facilities. They've offered us uh, the facilities for any group or organization come and have a couple of day retreat. So I want to tell people: if you're in business, please support us. Have a look at that. But look at everything. NewmontAuction.com. Vic, I know you will, but I'll outbid you. So thanks for the time. 
Hey, well, Mike, I, I hope you have a great time playing golf next Wednesday out at West uh, Westwood Plateau. I'll be the policeman. I, I'm going to be the ultimate marshal. I'm not playing, but I'm there as the per- tournament chairman driving around, just giving people a bad time. Anyways, Dick, have a great weekend. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, I got to start by saying I have no idea why the aggression of the Communist Party of China, the number one consensus geopolitical issue in the world, and Canada's response was not a major campaign issue. CSIS, as well as the Canadian military, have warned about China's efforts to influence Canadian politics. Uh, They warned about the intimidation, threats, and bullying of Canadian citizens through Beijing-connected groups. You may recall that just last June, Twitter removed 170,000 accounts from its platform that are linked directly to the communist government. In June this year, RCMP said they're receiving an average of 120 tips daily alleging clandestine activities by the Communist Party agents in Canada. Still, not a topic of conversation in the campaign. Well, I sure think there should have been. But think about this. There's things like the Liberal government was giving tax dollars to pro-Chinese communist groups, like the $160,000 given to the Council of Newcomer Organizations. That's a group that parrots the Communist Party line. Our tax dollars. Good example is when Parliament declared China's treatment of the Uyghurs as genocide. That group went on Chinese language websites stating that the declaration was a product of our MPs, in quotes, ignorance and prejudice, and could cause far-reaching damage to bilateral relations. Still, we're not talking about it. And now, few people seem to care about China's blatant interference in the election. I mean, just before the election was called, the Federal Communications Security Establishment warned, in quotes, We judge it very likely that Canadian voters will encounter some form of foreign cyber interference ahead of during the next federal election. As Terry Glavin reports in the National Post, pro-Beijing propaganda outlets like the Global Times went so far as to warn that Canada would be subjected to counter-strikes if voters replaced Trudeau's Liberals with O'Toole's Conservatives. Didn't merit a mention. Still virtually no mention of the blatant interference during the campaign. Things like pro-CCP misinformation was rampant, stating things like the conservative policy of groups lobbying on behalf of foreign governments had to register. Instead, social media was full of false accusations that the policy meant that any Chinese Canadian who expressed support for Xi Jinping would have to register. Terry Glavin went on to report that both Vancouver East NDP candidate Jenny Kwong, she's an MP too, and Steveson Richmond East Conservative MP and candidate Kenny Chu, along with other politicians who've spoken out against human rights abuses, were both targeted by pro-Beijing groups during the election. I guess I'm saying is I just simply don't understand why more people and politicians aren't concerned. I mean, heaven help us if that's because the target this time around was the Conservative Party. I mean, the integrity of our democracy shouldn't be a partisan issue, and it sure as heck should receive a lot more attention from the public, the media, and our politicians. I mean, it's for the sake of the country. I mean, we desperately need some leadership on this follow. That's all the time I have. I just want to remind you, really, help out the people with intellectual disabilities and their families and the volunteers of Special Olympics by joining us. and Go www.newmontauction.com. I can tell you, it's much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.